First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is, you might call, the end of the introduction of the book of Romans. Next week is going to be the thesis statement, you might say, the theme of the whole book. And then we're going to get into what's called the body of the letter. But there's still some important points here for us to to focus on. So let's take a look again at verse 8 and then go a little slower. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So last week, we had the greeting, where Paul introduces himself, he addresses the people he's writing to, and he spent some time, as Paul does, to give some doctrinal foundation for just about everything he does, and we drew out what will become the major theme of the book of Romans in general, which is that God has fulfilled the old covenant through the son of David, Jesus, the Messiah, by bringing salvation to all the nations. This was always the plan. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God told Abraham when he first called him, through you all the nations of the world shall be blessed. And Paul is excited because he gets to be a part of that ministry, bringing about, remember, the obedience of faith to all the nations because of what Christ has done. So he gets into verse 8 and says, First, Now, in true preacherly fashion, Paul is never going to get to second or third or anything after that. So it might be better to understand that as saying, allow me to begin. First things first. He doesn't intend to go on to second and third. I had a middle school principal. It did not matter what he was talking about. It could have been a school board meeting. It could have been, you know, lunch. And he always said, first and foremost, very, you know, formal way to go about it. So probably more like that. You're not, sometimes when you're studying the Bible, you see something like first, you want to mark it and find out where the next point is, but we're not going to have that in the book of Romans. So what does he begin? He begins with, as was common in any letter from this time period, and especially for Paul, thanksgiving and prayer for his recipients. Just about every letter, with the possible exception of Galatians, begins with some nice words about the people he's writing to. Thanksgiving for them. He talks about the prayer that he's lifting up for them. There's a really fun study to be done on all the prayers of Paul at the beginning of his epistles. And he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. And that that would preach on its own. I thank God through Jesus Christ. There's nothing that we do as Christians that is not done through Jesus Christ. Even something as simple as thanking God is done through Christ. That's why we have access to the Father in the first place. So, I thank God through Christ for what? For all of you. I thank God for all of you. Why? Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. 
That's why he thanks the Lord, because your faith has been proclaimed through all the world. He's thanking God for the testimony of the Roman church, that the whole world knew that there were Christians in Rome, which is a remarkable thing, because Rome, of course, was the capital of the empire of the world, really, at this point. And as we discussed last week, there had been no apostolic foundation for Rome. The church was not founded by Peter or by Paul or by any such named apostle. It was begun, as far as we can tell, by Christians every day. You want to use the term normal Christians who heard the gospel probably at Pentecost in Jerusalem, went back to Rome and brought it with them. We discussed how early on it spread largely among the Jews. The Jews were expelled from Rome and then it became a more Gentile church mostly in the slums at this point. That would change, but it was a very low-class church. But it was a remarkable thing for the whole world to know that Rome has Christians in it. This is not some fringe thing happening over here. It's not this weird cult coming out of Jerusalem, but even in Rome are there Christians. And for a church that was missionary-minded, that wanted to take the gospel to the world, it was a point of rejoicing and gratitude that even in Rome... There were Christians. That's why Paul is thanking the Lord. Very similar to what he said to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 and 9. He said, I've been worried about you, but every church is talking about you and how you gave up your idols to follow the Lord. Now, it's an interesting thing that in the book of Romans, Paul never refers to this group of people as a church. If you read many of his other books, he'll say, to the church in Ephesus or to the church in Thessalonica. And we're not quite sure what the reason for that is, and there may not be much significance to it. What we see when we get to the end of the book is Paul will greet several people by saying, greet the church in your house. So while most of the other churches would gather in the synagogue or they'd gather at the river or in Jerusalem at the temple, it seems that the church in Rome was composed of small groups, you might say, smaller house churches. And that could have been part of the problem that Paul is hoping to address because they were divided among one another. And that could be why he doesn't want to refer to the single church, but to the house churches. And so he refrains from using that word. But it is still, to use the Greek word, a church. It is an ecclesia. Have you heard this word before? It's where we get the word ecclesiastical from. When you're referring to church matters, you refer to the ecclesiastical matters. And it comes from the word ek, which means out of, and klesia is like the word kaleo, which means to call. So it, it, it would preach real nice to say the church are those who have been called out by God. It's probably pushing it a, a little hard. It's like a butterfly is not butter that flies. You know what I mean? You can't just put the words together. But it, it, it does have the sense of everybody being called together or a gathering, the community, the assembly. Our word congregation would be very close because it's where people congregate together. So there would be ecclesias for all sorts of reasons at this point. If there was a big announcement to be made, there was no newspaper, there was no TV or Facebook. So you would gather all the people together and the herald would let the people know, let the ecclesia know. Now, in the New Testament... When it uses that term ecclesia, most of the time we translate it and understand it to mean church. Because it's not just a community, but it is a specifically Christian community. It is a Christian assembly, a group of called Christians together. And we ourselves are a church. And I often will distinguish between the capital C church, which is the universal church all around the world, 
and the lowercase c church, which are individual local churches. For example, the church in Ephesus, the church in Thessalonica, the church in these various houses. And we ourselves are a church like the church in Rome was. And the church in Rome had such a great testimony that the Apostle Paul was thankful to God every time he prayed. He never forgot to thank God that there were Christians in Rome because of their testimony. And isn't that what we want for our church to have a good testimony, to be known for the right things, for people to thank God because of what's going on here? Some of y'all have even expressed that to me. You say, I'm so glad that this ecclesia is here in Trustful. We needed this so badly. It's a similar kind of thing. But what we need to ask is, what makes up a good testimony for a church? What makes up the right reputation? If we could decide how people were to think about our church, what ought we to choose? And from these verses, I think we can draw out what it is that should define a church properly, and therefore at least what the Apostle Paul thought made up a good testimony for a Christian church. So we're going to take these a couple verses at a time. This is all in the context of Paul thanking God and explaining his plans to them, but there's still points to be drawn out here. Keeping in mind that Paul is thanking the Lord for them, let's get to verses 9 and 10. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. That word for is a reference back to what he just said, which is, I'm grateful for you. And they might ask the question, what are you grateful for us for? You don't even know us. Paul had never been to Rome before. How should we believe that you actually care about us? And Paul's going to invoke the Lord's witness. This is not just talk. Sometimes we say, I'm so thankful for you and I pray for you all the time. And do you really pray though? <laughs> Would you be willing to say, God is my witness. I pray for you all the time. I never forget to thank God for you every time I pray. Paul was a sincere prayer warrior. Paul spent a lot of time in prayer, as we can gather from his epistles, and he's following the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who said, would often withdraw to desolate places and pray. He says, no, 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 I'm serious. I do thank God for you, my God, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. He says he serves God with my spirit. Now, typically, when we refer to my spirit, as it's translated in the ESV, we think of that as you know, internally, that there is a a inner drive to thank the Lord for you. There are a few who see this as a reference to the Holy Spirit, because as you saw in verse 8, he he speaks of my God. And so some people think that when he says my spirit in verse 9, he is referring to the Holy Spirit. If that is the case, uh, that makes verse 9 a wonderful Trinitarian verse, wouldn't it? For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. I don't know that you can can push it that far. Uh, We certainly know that Paul believed in the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, the Spirit that fills us is the Holy Spirit, right? So whether or not that's what he's saying here, I would hope that each one of us would be able to speak of God as my God, and Jesus as my Lord, and the Spirit as my Spirit. And he says, I pray for them without ceasing. We saw this word, in First and Second Thessalonians, it's adialeptos, which means without stopping. I'm always thanking God for you. I'm always praying for you. And what is his prayer? Not just that he's thanking God, 
But he says, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He says, I've been wanting to come to Rome for so long. And every time I kneel down to pray, I thank God for you. And I said, Lord, let me get to Rome. I want to preach in Rome. I want to minister and serve in Rome. In Acts 19.21, Paul decided to go back to Jerusalem, but he commented to himself, next time I must see Rome. So this motivation of his is well attested outside of the book of Romans as well as within. But we might ask the question then, and as well they might, well then why haven't you come? If you care about us so much, if you're so grateful for us, if you really want to be here, why haven't you come? Because he says, look, for God is my witness whom I serve. That word for serve is not the usual word for serve that we use related to the word for servant. It's latruo, which refers to priestly service. Very specifically religious kind of word. He says, I serve the Lord. And he says in verse 10, by God's will. Paul says, I wanted to come, but I'm in service to God and it does not seem to have been God's will yet which he will further expand in the next verses. But this brings us to our first point here. What makes a good church? What kind of reputation ought we to have? What should be our priority? Number one, worship of God the Father. That is what should characterize and define God's church. Amen? Isn't that true? If nothing else, to be a Christian is to worship the true and living God. That we are the servants of the Lord. This is a unique, special thing that maybe we can get used to. Because now, when most people talk about God, they generally mean the Lord. They mean the Judeo-Christian deity, right? Even Muslims believe they are worshiping the same God. They worship him in error, and that's not the case. But most people, and the only point I'm trying to make is, when they say God, they mean our God. When Paul was writing this, that was not the case. And it's still, in many parts of the world, not the case today. You say God, and they'd say, which God? The word pantheon means all gods. That's who the Romans had. They were more than willing to add another one to the pile, very similar to the Hindu cultures today. The Jews had the true knowledge of God. The Lord had revealed himself to them in a unique way. He had put down the gods of Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai. He had forbidden them to worship images. He had forbidden them to worship the other gods of the nations in the promised land because he's trying to drill into their head, there is only one God and it's me, the true God, the living God. And that was a unique thing that the Jews had. And this is part of their job was to be taking that testimony around the world. But as we read last week, that knowledge of the true God was supposed to cover the world like water covers the sea. That has been initiated by Jesus Christ. Part of the reason that Jesus came, of course, to pay, pay for sins, it's all bound up in one thing, but was so that the whole world could know the Lord. Let's look at this example in John chapter 4, verse 21 through 24. Do you know this story? This is the woman at the well where they were traveling through Samaria which you know the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And there's this woman coming to the well. Jesus is sitting at the well. He's tired. The disciples have gone off to go and buy food in the city. There's Jesus sitting, and here she comes. He asks her to get him some water, and immediately she starts fighting with him. 
She was that kind of woman. I've seen depictions of this where she's very sophisticated and very kind. And, you know, well, you have nothing to draw with, sir. You've you, you got to picture this woman with an attitude. She's being sassy with Jesus. She's like, uh, excuse me, you're a Jew, you're going to come talk to me? Who do you think you are? And Jesus is, goes back and forth with her. And so he's talking to her and she's trying to have this whole fight about Jews and Samaritans. And she says, oh, let me ask you a question since you're so smart and know God so well. Y'all worship at the temple in Jerusalem, but the Bible says that Jacob worshiped on this mountain. So which is it, smart guy? And Jesus said to her in John chapter 4, 21 through 24, he said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. She goes, so which is it? Is it here or there? And Jesus goes, well, it's there. But the day is coming when it's going to be everywhere. Because the Lord is seeking for people to worship him in spirit and in truth. And that is what the church is. It's a gathering of people who worship, first of all, in truth. What does it mean to worship in truth? As Jesus said, to worship what you know. We know who God is by Jesus Christ, by those scriptures that have been revealed to us. And I could spend a lot of time, and we have before. There's a whole 10-part series on our website of the attributes of God. But we can just run through a couple. To worship God in truth means to know that he is omnipotent, which means all-powerful. That song you even used to sing when you were kids, my God is so great, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. That's a pretty good description right there. There is nothing so great that God cannot do it. God created all things. Nothing binds him in his power. Number two, God is omniscient, which is omniscience. God has all knowledge. There's nothing the Lord does not know. Even the depths of the heart of man, it is known by the Lord. Every mystery that science has ever uncovered, God understands it perfectly. God's knowledge is so great. He says, my ways are, are higher than your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts, like the heavens are above the earth. He says, that's how much higher my thoughts are than yours are. So you're not keeping secrets from God. Number three, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. The Psalms talk about, I could flee to Sheol, I could go to the ends of the earth, I could take the wings of the morning and fly over the sea, and, and you're still there. Jonah learned that lesson, right? God's like, are you trying to run from me? Like, oh man, he got on a boat, I can't catch him there. He's everywhere. There's nowhere you're going to hide from the Lord. The Holy Spirit dwells everywhere. And number four, he's omnibenevolent, which means he is all good. God's character is perfect. He is a holy God. In fact, it's almost not fair to, to say that God is good because God defines what goodness is. We measure goodness by who God is. So when people want to come in and cast judgment against God, as we're going to read later in this book, Paul goes, who are you to question God? You only know what good is because you know who God is. And I could throw in there, we talked about a few weeks ago, God is triune. That's a special revelation of the New Testament. That God is one, but God is also three. We worship God in truth. All false gods have been cast down. I don't know what they were worshiping in Alabama before the gospel got here. They're not worshiping it anymore. We don't even know who they are. 
You go to Europe, you go to India, you go to places, you can see these ruins where these temples were, where they used to worship these false gods, but they're ruins now. And even people that want to say things like, we've got to get back to the old gods, they don't really mean believing in the old gods, they just want to get rid of Christian culture. The Lord has wiped out all these false deities because the knowledge of God, worship in truth. And we worship also in spirit. This is important. Paul in verse 8 called the Lord my God. That's an important thing for us to know as Christians. That he's not just God. He's my God. He's my Lord. We are his servants. We are devoted to God, not just formally, as in I know this is right. I'm going to show up to church. I'm going to pay my tithe. I'm going to sing the songs. This is what I'm supposed to do. That's a good place to start, but I would hope that over time you'll be brought to a place where you delight in the Lord. And let me just throw this one at you, fellas. A lot of times we feel like it's a feminine thing to be devoted to God. Nothing could be further from the truth. David was a warrior that chopped off giants' heads, and he wrote songs about how I love the Lord so much. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So don't, I could just add to that, if you feel like, all the worship of God and every example you've seen has been feminine, then worship the Lord in a masculine way. The church needs that too, doesn't it? Yeah. We are to be delighting ourselves in the Lord. And I remember this was a few years ago. Some people said this, and thankfully this trend kind of died. But let's go ahead and kick it while it's down just to make sure. We're saying it's, it's not very manly to talk about loving Jesus because, you know, Jesus is a man and I'm a man and I don't want to say I love. Jesus said the greatest commandment in the scripture is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Maybe you need to redefine what you mean by love rather than redefine the scriptures, huh? So we are worshipers of God the Father. That's what it means to be a church. We worship God. Paul had his desires. He had what he wanted to do. He wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to preach there. But he subordinated all those desires to God's will. He sought God's permission to do the things he wanted to do. That's what it means to be a servant of God, which is exactly what Jesus did. The Son of Man can do nothing unless he sees the Father do it first. So if we want to have a good testimony, we need to be known for our love of God and our obedience to God. It's not about us first in the church. You know, we gain so many benefits from serving the Lord. Sometimes I almost feel selfish, you know. The more I serve Jesus, the better my life gets. But what happens that is a problem is when we put that before the worship of the Lord. And the church becomes all about meeting people's needs and doing good things and being kind and having a safe place for the kids. Listen, that's all good. But it begins by a worship of God, an acknowledgement of who he is. That's the first thing. Let's keep reading now, verses 11 and 12. So I thank my God always for you. And you know that because I really do want to come see you. I've been praying for it all the time. Verse 11, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Why does Paul want to come? That they may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. Here's a verse that might need some more attention later. Because that word for imparting a spiritual gift just means to, to give or to share. To impart a spiritual gift. There are two very wildly different interpretations of what that means. You've got the you know, very charismatic interpretation and the very not charismatic interpretation. So there are those that say, 
When Paul means he wants to impart a spiritual gift, this is a foundation for the doctrine of spiritual impartation. That there are those who can pass along spiritual gifts by laying hands on them and praying for them. And there is certainly something to that in the scriptures. There are those that lay hands on one another. Paul talked about that. We see it in the Old Testament too. But there are those that want to take this little verse and make an entire doctrine out of this. And there, there are certain doctrines that we can hold tenuously. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think this is what it means, but I, I don't want to be dogmatic about it. But then on the other side, you got those who say, there's nothing spiritual going on here. Paul's talking about the book of Romans. I want to impart a spiritual gift. So here it is, the book of Romans. Now, that seems more like a reaction to the other thing than good Bible study, doesn't it? I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, that we may be mutually encouraged. Whatever Paul wants to do, it has to happen in Rome, number one. And number two, it's mutual. It goes back and forth between the two of them. I think it's probably best to understand that as saying Paul wants to share the gifts that have been given to him, and also quite possibly that Paul has some kind of spiritual impartation, especially as an apostle, that he would like to pass on to them. But I will say that you want to be careful of taking like a phrase that seems to fit like what you want, and then there you go. Now I can say everything I want. A lot of times folks will write a whole book full of their ideas, and they'll have half a verse that is like their launching pad for it. And ah, see, it's got biblical foundation. I think th- this verse and this idea would merit some further study. I think the whole point is Paul wants to come and share the gifts that God has given to him with them. He uses the, the phrase spiritual gifts, charisma pneumaticon. Charisma means gift. Pneumaticon means spiritual. And it's funny because most of the time when Paul refers to spiritual gifts, he'll either use one of those words or the other. Charisma meaning gift and pneumaticon meaning spiritual. So for example, in 1 Corinthians 12, when he says, now concerning spiritual gifts, I do not want you to be ignorant. He just uses the second word here, pneumaticon. But then other places, when he talks about our gifts, he uses the word charisma. And here he's using them together, so I think it's pretty clear that he is talking about those spiritual gifts. What 1 Corinthians 12, 7 calls the manifestations of the Spirit for the common good. Every one of us has been filled with the Spirit in Christ Jesus, and the Spirit uses each one of us in a unique, supernatural way. And some of those are more demonstrative than others. They're more flashy like the gifts of miracles or healing, and some of them just seem very common, like encouragement or helps or administration. But I think we all know the difference between somebody who is being helpful and somebody who's being helpful in the Spirit. And if you haven't, then once you encounter it, you'll be like, okay, that's that's something else. So this is probably what Paul's talking about. He says, I want to come. God has given me some incredible spiritual gifts. And Paul did, right? Paul was was a preacher. He was a teacher. He had the gift of tongues. He had the gift of prophecy. He had discernment of spirits. And he says, I, I want to come and minister to you with the gifts God has given to me. But immediately in verse 12, do you see, he says, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged. Paul's not just saying, I'm going to come because y'all could really benefit from my ministry. He says, I want to come so that I can benefit from your ministry and you can benefit from mine. You can see here, by the way, that Paul is not asserting himself as strongly as he does in some of his other letters, right? Galatians, 1 Corinthians, he comes out guns blazing. I'm an apostle, so you best listen to what I have to say. But he didn't plant this church. That's that's, that's a good example. You know, there's certain things you will say to those that are in your family, your church, your, your tribe, so to speak. 
When you go somewhere else, you don't want to come in guns blazing, even if you got something tough to say. He says, I'd love to come and minister to you, but don't think that I'm, I'm being prideful here. I also realize I've got a lot to benefit from you, too. We know that Paul needed their help on his mission to Spain. Chapter 15, we'll talk about that. But what's very clear to see is that's not the only reason Paul wants to come. There are some itinerant ministers, traveling evangelists, traveling preachers, apologists, musicians, and so forth. They, they love to travel, and they love to use their gifts, but they're not really interested in receiving mutual encouragement. Have you ever encountered somebody like this? Worship leaders are really bad about this for some reason. They come in and they got their own room to themselves. They come out on stage and they do their thing. And then they're backstage and they're gone after five minutes. And it's like, I've got something to bring to you, but I don't really want to talk to any of you peasants. You know, that's not how Paul saw it. And some well-seasoned evangelists who should know better will do the same thing. They'll come and they'll preach and then they're gone. And you say, what are you doing? Are you just here to come and give us something that I could have gotten from a video online? We ought to have the same humility towards one another that we can minister to each other. That, you know, I, I might be the Apostle Paul coming to some church I've never been to in the slums of Rome. But he said, but I'm not so prideful to think that I don't have anything to benefit from contact with you. Which is our second point here. What makes a good church? Edification by the Holy Spirit. It's our second priority that we're discussing today. If you want to have a good reputation as a church, have a reputation as a church that is full of the Spirit that edifies one another. And you need both those things. Some, some churches are known, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost does stuff there, but it might not be very edifying. Other churches are very edifying and they'll build me up, but dry as a bone when it comes to the things of the Spirit. We know from Romans chapter 8, verse 9, if you are a Christian, you have the Spirit of God. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, Tarry in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. Jesus Christ sees the ministry of the Holy Spirit as essential for his church. Paul uses the example of a body, that every person has been given a specific job by the Spirit, just like the different parts of your body have a different job. And the body only functions when every part is working together. And when we all work together, the congregation is edified. The word means built up, like the word edifice, or maybe if you speak Spanish, edificio means to build. It all comes from the same root, that we build each other up into who God's called us to be. Paul put it this way, 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. What's the point of that verse? When you come together, everyone has something to contribute. You might need to hear that, that you have something to contribute to God's church. It is not the pastor's job to do all the ministry. That might be traditional. It's not biblical. Ephesians 4.12 says the pastor's job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. My job is to make you ready to do what you've got to do. Which is why I do not feel bad or threatened when somebody else counsels somebody else and does a great job. I don't have a single problem when I hear somebody say, so-and-so is in the hospital and I went and visited them. Hey, that's my job. No, that makes me happy. It's like, oh, good. The church is doing what it's supposed to do. I shouldn't have to be at everything. In fact, sometimes I may get a point not to come to things. Because I want the church to be able to function without me. 
Because y'all don't need me, you need the Holy Spirit. My job primarily is here to teach you and equip you to edify each other. A good church has every member using their gifts to encourage and edify one another. We need you. If you are not doing what God has called you to do in the church, the rest of us are suffering for it. And we can't have that attitude. Well, you don't really need me. Well, you could also say we have two lungs. What do we need them both for? You'll, you'll still get air. Yeah, but we won't get enough. You got two legs. What do you, what do you need both legs for? You got ten fingers. You can stand to lose a few. But that's not how the body was designed to function, is it? The church is designed to function with every gift active and functioning. That means you. How does this work? Well, like Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 14, it refers to formal meetings. We do those on Sunday nights mostly where we open it up for the gifts to be exercised, encouragement and prophecy and tongues and interpretation, all the things we read about there. And I hope that goes on in the home fellowships too and in some of the small groups that we give place for that. But I want to say this, it's not just in the meetings, but it's afterwards too. Y'all don't need to get a, a ready, set, go to encourage one another or to exhort one another, even, even to teach and instruct one another. So there's folks in this church that are fabulous examples of teachers who do not stand in a pulpit. That when you're talking to one another, you're just sharing what God said to you in the word and you're kind of talking these things out together and helping one another understand. That's teaching. That's a wonderful thing. There are certain gifts that cannot be exercised in a meeting, like administration. That's a spiritual gift. Did you know that? And the church needs spirit-filled administrators, let me just tell you. The church needs people that are filled with the miraculous gifts as well. The gifts of healing and the gift of miracles. We say, well, I don't know about those. I will tell you this. I've already many times explained why I do not believe the Bible has put those things aside. And if that is true, that means if the church is not functioning with those gifts, we are missing something. We are walking around with one leg not working or with one lung not working. And I'm not here to beat anybody down. This is an uplifting message. I'm just saying, if God's given you gifts, don't keep them secret. You know? And I should say, too, you should not limit yourself and say, well, that's not my gift, so I'm not going to do it. <laughs> there are folks that will use that as an excuse to get out of stuff. Oh, that's not really my calling to do that. You're weaponizing your calling to get out of stuff. You know, what did Jesus say? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. God's like, don't, don't bring me into this, right? I used to tell our high school boys in the youth group when they wanted to break up with their girlfriends and they wanted to try and make it some religious thing. Well, I've just been praying a lot, babe. And <laughs> God says uh, it's time for us to break up. And I'd be like, fellas, don't do that, right? Or, or the young ladies would go up and say, you know what God showed me in the meeting today? We're going to get married. <laughs> And he he did not receive that as from the Lord. Spiritualizing things that maybe should just be left alone, right? But the point I'm trying to make with that is Paul told Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Timothy was timid. He was not gifted as a bold evangelist, but Paul says he's still got to do it. We are all called to mutually encourage one another, whether or not you have the gift of encouragement. I know some people, I'll spend 30 minutes talking to somebody trying to encourage them and I feel like I barely got anywhere. This person comes along and says one thing and I think, wow, I feel so much better. That's the gift of encouragement. Not all of us have the gift of healing, but we're all commanded to pray for the sick, are we not? That's really all that it is anyway, is asking God to help. 
Paul had many gifts. Paul was astonishing. I would, I would love to have Paul come and minister here. He kind of is by this letter. But he recognized that the Romans had something to add to him too. And I love that attitude. If we want a good testimony, we must be mutually encouraging by the Holy Spirit. That when we come together and I say amen, church isn't over. But y'all are, are still talking and discussing and that the home fellowships and on the outreaches that we do, the gifts are functioning with one another. You're being further built up after the sermon ends. Because if it's all going to be based on the sermons, that puts way too much pressure on, <laughs> on me to get this right. It is my job to equip you to do the work of ministry. And this is what Paul understood too. I love his humility in these verses here. Moving on to verse 13. So he says, I thank my God for you. I pray for you. I really want to come because I want to do ministry with you and be encouraged by you. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. In order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Again, he's reassuring them that I really do want to come see you. I've had you on my mind for a long time. I've often intended to come to you, but I've been prevented. So this is very important because later on he's going to mention this mission to Spain. He's trying to make it very clear that's not the only reason I'm writing to you is because I need help. Paul was very, very careful to be kind in how he requested help from his churches. But he says, I was prevented from coming to you. Now, this could be the devil opposing him, like it said in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, where he said, I wanted to come, but the devil hindered us. Remember that? But I think he answers this question for himself in chapter 15 of this book. He says in Romans 15.20, Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. And verse 22, that is the reason why I've been so often hindered from coming to you. So that's a great example of sometimes the text raises questions, and if you keep reading, it answers its own questions. I've been hindered from coming to you because I want to do ministry where somebody else has not done it yet. I want to be a pioneer of the gospel. I don't, I don't want to come behind and, and build on what somebody else has done. Now, there are others whose job is to do exactly that. Apollos was a man like that, for example, right? Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered. So that's why Paul didn't come, because my priority is to go where there are no churches. He mentions later that he had gone as far as Illyricum, which is modern-day Albania, can you believe that, to preach the gospel. So every time Paul thought about going to Rome, his conscience would smite him and say, yeah, but what about over here where no one's even heard? That's a very important thing for us to know. He says, I wanted to come, but this is my priority. And he gives a further reason of why he wants to come, that I may reap some harvest among you. So not just for mutual encouragement, but that they may reap a harvest. He's talking about evangelism here. Verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now we might say, wait a minute, preach the gospel. They already got the gospel. They're already saved, right? Well, we need to expand our understanding of what it means to preach the gospel. The word euangelizomai, evangelize. It's more than just initial conversion, which is typically how we understand it. But Paul says, I want to help make disciples out of you. I want you to grow into the likeness of Christ. And he says, and I also want to expand the base too. He says, I want to get there and I want to help you. I know you're trying to do ministry. Let me come and help you. God's gifted me with evangelism. Let me come and preach. 
similar to how the team from Lynchburg came down and they helped us preach the gospel. And it also is possible that Paul wanted to come to Rome to minister to them because they had never had an apostolic foundation. And at this time, that was kind of an important thing, wasn't it? The apostles were still there. They had been given a specific commission to establish God's church. And it is possible that Paul's very kindly, without barging his way in, saying, let let me come and lend some legitimacy to this church and to maybe straighten out some doctrinal matters that are unclear, which is exactly what he's going to do in this letter. And we know by the time he shows up to Rome, they're very much going to receive him. And he refers to his ministry to the Gentiles. I wanted to come, but I couldn't. Why? Because my ministry is to preach the gospel to the whole world, not just to you. Perhaps he was concerned about maybe a Roman pride here. We talk about like the American elites, right? That New York thinks they run the whole world and California thinks everybody wants to move there. And, you know, that maybe this is kind of the attitude of Rome. So you're preaching everywhere, but you're not going to come to us. Don't you know who we are? So Paul's saying, listen, as much as I'd love to come to you, I'm under obligation to preach the gospel everywhere. He refers to his ministry to the Gentiles, which, as I've said many times, it is probably the theme of Romans, if we can say that, it's a long book, that the gospel has gone to the whole world, that the old covenant was fulfilled in Christ, now there is a new covenant that I'm taking around the world to the Gentiles. I'm under obligation to Greeks, barbarians, the wise, and the foolish. I said, I thought these were Romans. Well, they were, but this is Greco-Roman culture, right? This is Greek and Roman culture. You remember maybe from school, they're, they're so similar to one another. You're really learning the same things. You're just trying to come up with different names for them. Now, Paul himself was a Greek. He was a Hellenized Jew. He was a citizen of Rome. He grew up in Tarsus and Cilicia. So anybody who is considered a Greek is somebody that was part of this dominant culture of the day. They would have, I, you know, I'm just kind of using the stereotypes here. They would have worn the toga. They would have known Plato and Aristotle, right? They would have gone to the Olympic Games every year. Paul was certainly a big fan of the sporting events of Roman culture, if you read your Bible closely. But not just to them, he says, but also to barbarians. Now, we think barbarian and, you know, somebody who's barbaric is somebody that does horrible things. Well, that's actually not far from how they understood this either. Barbarian comes from the... Greeks making fun of people that didn't speak Greek. The barbarians. It's like, it's like, what is, I don't know, what a bar, 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 bar. That's, you laugh, that is exactly where that comes from. And it was an offensive term. So to give you an example, and I'm going to use an offensive term of our own to just chill for a little bit. I want you to get the full weight of this. When we refer to somebody from, from Asia as a ching chong. You're saying that because that's how the language sounds to us. Every one of you just went, that's the word he's using here. A barbarian. Somebody who's not a Greek. They talk funny. They dress funny. They act funny. They're unsophisticated. But he says, but I'm obligated to preach the gospel to them too. You've got to understand how dramatic this is. Rome didn't conceive of the world being outside of Rome. This is everything and everything out there. I don't know. Barbarians live out there. They're uncouth. They're rude, they're coarse, they don't know our philosophy, they don't know our culture, they worship weird gods. Which is funny because, at least for me, that's the culture that I descended from. So, here you go. I'm glad he had an obligation to preach the gospel to the barbarians. It was a slanderous term, similar to how we've been reading in the book of Genesis. To be called a Hebrew, at that stage of the game, was not a nice thing. Similar to being called a gypsy, 
in Europe. But he says also to the wise, the educated and the sophisticated, those who knew Greek and Roman philosophy. They understood the deep questions and they understood the Pythagoras and his mathematics and they understood the culture and the art. And the foolish were those who were uneducated. They didn't get Greek culture. So you can think of some of those Germanic tribes that they were trying to suppress. They had built Hadrian's Wall to keep Scotland up there outside of Rome. They were foolish. They didn't understand the enlightenment that we have brought to the whole world. Now, is Paul endorsing discrimination here? Absolutely not. The exact opposite of that is the case. He's speaking to that Roman pride and saying, as much as I'd love to come to you, I'm under obligation to the whole world. You can call them barbarians. You can call them foolish if you want. But I'm under an equal obligation to the Greeks and to the wise. Some people want to say, my mission is to, and they want to narrow their their group. I'm only going to do mission to the poor because they're the ones that need it. But Jesus and Paul remind us the rich need it too. You're just doing that because you want to be loved by the rich. Well, somebody's got to preach the gospel to them, huh? Colossians 3.11 talks about in Christ there is not slave or free or Jew or Greek or barbarian or Scythian, but we're all one in Christ Jesus. What makes a good church? Number three, evangelism for Jesus Christ. This is our number three priority. That we take the gospel to the world. If we want to have a good reputation as a church, let's have a reputation as a church that preaches the gospel. Jesus changed the whole game. It used to be the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews, he said in in John chapter 4. He said, don't mingle with the other cultures. If they want to become Jews, they can be Jews. But don't worship their gods, don't marry their daughters, and don't marry their sons. But Jesus changed all that. Because Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins for the whole world. And now the word has gone out. Everyone may be saved regardless of background, regardless of whatever group you don't care for, regardless of what other group makes you uncomfortable or that you just can't stand how they're outside of the sophisticated culture of the United States of America. We've got a very similar pride, don't we? Our job is to go to the whole world and, and teach them steps one and two that we already went over today. Teach them to worship the true and living God. Teach them to be edifying one another by the Holy Spirit. And then to go out and duplicate the process. That's what a church is for. Matthew 28, they're familiar verses, 19 and 20. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. We've been sent out to let the whole world know what Christ has done. Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. People need to know that. The fulfillment of Abraham's promise has come. Everything is different now. We even measure time before Christ, after Christ. And that's a very good picture of what's happening in the spiritual as well. Judgment is coming and the Point of judgment will be your response to Jesus. Acts 17.31, Paul would say to the Athenians, he'd say, the times of ignorance, God overlooked. God is patient and was kind with your ignorance. He says, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has established a day when he will judge the world by the man, Christ Jesus. You know, serving Christ is not just fluffy feelings, right? It's not just coming to church and feeling so wonderful about being a Christian and God is great and God makes me feel happy and 
hey, is there anything wrong with that? No. Nor is it just Christian culture. We're coming together. We have a very specific culture. We, we, this is how we talk. This is how we act. This is how we dress. These are the things we think are okay and that are not okay. And we come in, we get concerned and bent out of shape because the dominant culture is moving away from our own Christian culture. Is that okay too? Yeah, that's okay. But we would expect over time that the church would develop a different sensibility about things than the rest of the world. But that's not what it's all about either. I think we're seeing today a lot of folks are getting more obsessed with preserving Christian culture than they are with making the transition from you know, being accepted by the world to being on defense again. But serving Jesus is true start-to-finish evangelism. Beginning with that initial conversion all the way to the, where they have been made a disciple who is making more disciples. You know you've finished the job of evangelism when the person that you led to Jesus Christ is now leading other people to Jesus Christ. This is what Paul was doing. He was taking the gospel around the world. I would love to come to Rome. Why haven't you come so far? Don't you care about us? Of course I do. I pray for you all the time. But I've got to preach the gospel everywhere, even to the barbarians. You're going to go to the barbarians before you go to Rome? Yep. Because they all need Jesus Christ. The markers that we make among ourselves as people are kind of foolish, aren't they? Because we look back at it now and it's like, what's the difference between you know, an Anglo-Saxon Germanic guy and a Roman guy. None of them knew Jesus. They were all worshiping false gods. They were all violent, horrible people. And were you going to draw the line? Oh, we're different. We're better than them. And not, that's not how God sees us, is it? God comes in and says, I see you all as equally in need of salvation and equally loved by me. A true church is committed to that same mission at home and abroad to herald the good news because people got to know. They got to know. Because if they die without Jesus, they die in their sins. So these things we saw. Number one, we are worshipers of God the Father. We are edifying one another by the Holy Spirit, and we are evangelizing the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a Trinitarian outline for you right there. Now, Paul would eventually come to Rome, wouldn't he? But it would only come as a prisoner of Caesar. Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, and Jesus told him in Acts 23, 11, don't worry about it, Paul. You ministered, ministered to me here, you're going to minister to me in Rome too. It took years, but he finally got there. It had been his desire to minister in the capital of the world. It made him so glad, he was so grateful that even Rome has churches now. Been slogging his way through the region of Asia, what we would call Turkey today, Macedonia, down into Greece, and then word gets him from Priscilla and Aquila. There's Christians in Rome too. He goes, really? And he says, then let's keep going. The church of Jesus Christ is a worldwide family of God worshipers who edify one another by their spirit-given gifts and live every moment to advance the gospel of Jesus. That's the kind of reputation I want Calvary Chapel to have a worshipful church, that we are Godward in our orientation, that we are edifying one another, that we're full of the Holy Spirit, that we pray for one another, we edify one another, we encourage one another, we lay hands on one another. And number three, that we evangelize. I was actually very humbled and, and pleased when I went to a pastor's breakfast last week for some guys in the area and just in passing, when he was introducing me, one of the local pastors said, and this is Tyler from Calvary Chapel, and you know, that, that church really has a, has a heart to reach this area with the gospel, so we're really glad to have him here. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> That's what I want to be known for, right? 
We don't want to be known for a bunch of superficial things. We want to be known that these people want the gospel to go out. Because we do. Now we've got our issues. Right? Every, every culture has its issues. These, this church was dealing with the issues between Jews and Greeks. And throughout history, the church has always struggled with different things. And we've got our own weaknesses. Life is difficult. Sometimes you want to do all the stuff that's in there, and then you get a pandemic and you're not allowed to come to church anymore. There are always difficulties like that. But at least here we're given our aiming point, what we're going after, the template that we're trying to fit. And the best part of this news is that despite our weaknesses, despite the fact that I'm going to get it wrong sometimes, that you're going to get it wrong sometimes, Jesus Christ is the one who builds the church, not us. Aren't you so glad that it's not up to us to build the church? Jesus told Peter in Matthew 16, 18, I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock, I will build my church. Who will build his church? Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Hell and all of its fury cannot stop God's church. So whenever you see on TV that the poor pathetic Christians are facing the, the evil demon and the evil spirit and they're cowering and cringing, it's like, no way. It's the exact opposite of that. When the demons saw that Jesus was coming, they whined and they begged, please don't hurt me, Lord Jesus. Don't send me to the abyss just yet. I'll go live in a pig. I don't mind that. Because the gates of hell won't prevail against God's church. So when the world gets all big and bad and threatening, we say, we're here to do this mission. And Jesus told us that nobody can stop it. So we might be a ragtag band of house churches in a Roman slum. We might be a traditional temple-attending church in Jerusalem where you still keep the feasts and you still keep the food laws. We might be a giant megachurch with multiple campuses. You might be a cathedral in Europe with gold and stained glass windows. You might be an underground group in China meeting in secret. Or we could be a small evangelical congregation in an office building in Alabama. It does not matter what it looks like, as long as you are getting these things right. Isn't that true? It doesn't matter what the church looks like. What matters is, are you serving the Lord? Are you edifying one another by the Spirit? And are you preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's Christ's church. We do it His way. I think there's more to it than that. Okay, maybe. But these things are the foundation. And when we do it His way, we can be confident of His power to help us. His blessing upon our efforts, and most importantly, the approval of our Lord when we stand before him and he says, well done. Amen. 